Hey, hey, everybody. Uh, Jason Wheeler here, not with Jason Whiteley this time around. Uh, Whiteley picked a very interesting couple of weeks uh, to decide to take off. I think he's you know, traipsing around or maybe he's just uh, sitting around his house. Uh, and so I'm the one holding down the fort uh, here at the state capitol in Austin, where we are witnessing only the third impeachment trial in Texas history. This time, of course, it is for suspended Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, uh, who has uh, come under under 20 articles of impeachment. He is on trial right now for 16 of those articles. Uh, and in the very early going uh, here, it is slow going. Uh, and we sort of anticipated that. There were a lot of motions to get through. Uh, mainly the uh, suspended AG was asking the senators, who are the jurors in this case, to just toss out, dismiss uh, all of these different articles of impeachment against him. And then uh, he you know, didn't get his way with that. And he also asked that they dismiss individual articles of impeachment against him or that they exclude some of the evidence uh, that has been presented in this case. Uh, in all cases there, though, those were roundly rejected by the jurors there, the senators. Uh, and uh, instead, they, by, by vast majorities, Republican and Democrat said, no, we're going to go ahead and go through with this impeachment trial. Uh, and so it got underway. Uh, we've so far only heard from one witness, but we've also gotten the opening statements. And those always give you uh, at least a little bit of the character of what you can expect going forward uh, as we head through th this trial. It's not a criminal trial. It's not a civil trial. It is a political trial, but an opening statement does set the tone. And I will say that I thought that the interesting thing was with these opening statements is that they paint very different pictures. It's almost like you're hearing about two totally different Ken Paxton's. Uh, and, you know, that's just both sides doing their best uh, here to, to lay out the case as they see it. Interesting tactic here, or strategy, I guess. Uh, the prosecution has decided to limit its opening statement and save its time for other things as they go through the trial. They are under a lot of different time constraints. This isn't like a normal trial where you can sort of take as long as you need. Uh, so they're under a lot of time constraints to present their case. And so they've decided to hold on to some of that time. I think they only used about 17 minutes uh, for their opening statement. Uh, the defense, though, they used almost every minute of the hour that they were given uh, to present their opening statement. Uh, and again, you'll notice these are very different uh, statements. Uh, that you're about to hear here. We wanted to put these on for you in their entirety uh, because this is such an important case uh, for all Texans, really. This is a high official in this state, the highest official uh, other than the first impeachment. That was a governor. This is the, the next highest official who has ever been impeached here uh, in the state of Texas and is now going through an impeachment trial. So we wanted you to listen to this in its entirety, just like we let you listen in the entirety uh, a couple of months ago when the House investigating committee laid out its three hours uh, worth of case uh, against uh, the attorney the attorney general at the time he became the suspended attorney general several days later when the house voted to impeachment him and so you're about to hear here first from Andrew Murr he is a Republican from Junction he is the uh, chairman of the House Board of Impe Impeachment Managers he is an attorney uh, and he is uh, sitting on the prosecution side with other attorneys that they have brought 
brought in. You're going to hear from him first, presenting the prosecution's case. Uh, then you're going to hear from the defense attorneys here. Uh, you'll hear from Tony Busby, uh, who is uh, from Houston, a well-known attorney there, well-known defense attorney. You'll also be hearing from Dan Cogdell. He will be the last one that you hear from. Uh, anyway, we wanted you to hear this in its entirety, so here it is. Today is an important day. On this day in 1836, Sam Houston, whose Bible you used for your oaths today, was elected president of the Republic of Texas. Today is also an important day because we begin this impeachment trial. While impeachment is rare, the drafters of our state constitution recognized that there are times when this extraordinary remedy is needed to protect the state and its citizens from a public office holder who has abused the power of his office by putting self-interest above that of the people of Texas. The drafters concluded that this great deliberative body, the Texas Senate, is best positioned to determine what, when this remedy is appropriate. Earlier this year, Mr. Paxton came to the legislature seeking $3.3 million in taxpayer money to settle a whistleblower lawsuit. Mr. Paxton would not answer any questions about the underlying claims. He had successfully blocked any discovery in the case for almost two years, and he refused to justify the settlement. The House investigated the serious allegations raised by the whistleblowers. The House uncovered egregious misconduct and abuse of office by the Attorney General of the State of Texas and voted overwhelmingly to prefer articles of impeachment to the Senate. This is why we are here. The allegations in the articles reveal that the state's top lawyer engaged in conduct designed to advance the economic interests and legal positions of a friend and donor to the detriment of innocent Texans. Mr. Paxton turned the keys of the Office of Attorney General over to Nate Paul so that Mr. Paul could use the awesome power of the people's law firm to punish and harass perceived enemies. I was raised in rural Texas where a person's honor is more important than money, where integrity matters, by a family deeply affected by political corruption. This is precisely the type of grave official wrong that our Texas Supreme Court has said warrants impeachment. My grandfather, who was privileged to serve the state of Texas for many years, had a favorite quote from Abraham Lincoln. Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you really want to test a man's character, give him power. Mr. Paxton has been entrusted with great power. Unfortunately, rather than rise to the occasion, he has revealed his true character. And as the overwhelming evidence will show, he is not fit to be the Attorney General for the state of Texas. Mr. Paxton argues that the Senate should not exercise its constitutional duty to decide whether his conduct merits impeachment because voters were aware of the allegations and still re-elected him. He claims that the Senate should abide by the alleged will of the voters. However, this ignores the intent of our framers of the Constitution. 
Impeachment was in included in the Constitution after the Founding Fathers debated and rejected the idea that elections could singularly protect the public against abusive office holders. In other words, drafters agreed that impeachment was and is necessary to protect against abusive officials because it was simply too easy for them to use the powers of their office to conceal the truth until after the next election. The concept of the forgiveness doctrine is not in our Constitution and does not apply here. The courts have made that very clear. And even if it did, the doctrine presumes that voters know all the facts. The voters did not and do not know the whole truth. Mr. Paxton went to great lengths to hide his misconduct from the public. The evidence will show that he used massive resources of his office to prepare and issue a sham report that allegedly exonerated him. The evidence will show that this report contains false and misleading information about the allegations against him and about the whistleblowers themselves. And he also lied about the independent nature of this investigation. Documents will show that he played a key role in drafting that report. The Constitution says the Senate has the power and the duty to decide this case and to protect the people of Texas from someone who has violated his oath and has shown he does not respect the law. The witnesses and the evidence will show you that Mr. Paxton's conduct merits the exercise of that power. And the witnesses and the evidence will show and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he should be removed from office and prevented from ever holding a position of trust in the state of Texas again. Mr. Paxton argues that the articles do not allege impeachable conduct because they do not allege that he committed a crime. We do allege that he committed crimes. We have detailed that Mr. Paxton received favors, including home renovations and help in concealing and continuing an extramarital affair in exchange for the Office of Attorney General punishing Nate Paul's enemies. However, we don't have to show some type of quid pro quo to establish that his conduct should result in impeachment. As the Texas Supreme Court made clear regarding the impeachment of Governor Ferguson 106 years ago, wrongs justifying impeachment don't have to be crimes. Wrongs justifying impeachment are broader than that because they have the purpose of protecting the state, not punishing the offender. Mr. Paxton should be removed from office because he failed to protect the state and instead used the power of his elected office for his own benefit. And this was wrong. The oath of office that we all took to protect the citizens of state and to uphold the laws of this state and this constitution means something. It isn't just words on paper. It's literally an oath to God. And Mr. Paxton had an obligation not to abuse his office for his own benefit. He betrayed his constituents and the sacred public trust that's been given him. And in Texas, we require more from our public officials than to merely avoid being a criminal. 
The witnesses you will hear from are remarkable people. Until they refused to follow Mr. Paxton's wrongful demands, they were his most trusted, hand-picked advisors, and they believed in his conservative mission for the office of the Attorney General. The problem isn't that their commitment to conservative governance changed. It is at the end of the day, Mr. Paxton wasn't the man they thought he was. And he wasn't the man he publicly proclaimed to be. His trusted advisors are not rhinos or part of some deep state storyline. They are movement conservatives guided by their faith. These witnesses will explain step by step how they discovered that Mr. Paxton grew increasingly intent and passionate about helping his partner, Nate Paul, escape civil and criminal legal troubles that he was facing. They will describe in chilling detail when they connected the dots of Mr. Paxton's slow creep of corruption. The senior staff were outraged when they discovered that Mr. Paxton had directed a young, inexperienced outside attorney to obtain grand jury subpoenas to harass and interfere with an ongoing criminal investigation. Subpoenas that had been improperly issued to DPS officers, a federal judge, attorneys involved in a civil lawsuit against Nate Paul, and even court staff. And the subpoenas sought intensely personal information, including cell phone and email records. Now, I'm not going to detail in this opening all the allegations against Mr. Paxton. You're aware of many of them. You sit as a unique jury. Having known Mr. Paxton and familiar with some of the facts, but even a quick summary of some of the evidence that you're going to hear is shocking. One of Mr. Paxton's many acts of deceit involved a member of this chamber at a time when the policy of the state was Texas is open for business during COVID. Mr. Paxton directed his staff to issue a legal opinion advising that statewide forfeiture sales, excuse me, statewide foreclosure sales not move forward. Mr. Paxton was adamant that the opinion, which came to be known as the midnight opinion, be issued before the end of the weekend, just in time for Nate Paul to use it to avoid a foreclosure sale the following Tuesday. This conduct benefited Nate Paul and it harmed businesses and people impacted by foreclosure. Mr. Paxton also used the power of this office to harm a charity solely to benefit Nate Paul. The Office of the Attorney General is charged with the responsibility of intervening in lawsuits when it's necessary to assist a charitable organization. As you'll hear, the first and only charitable case Mr. Paxton took a personal interest in was the Mitty Foundation's lawsuit against Nate Paul's entities as an investor. The evidence will show that Mr. Paxton directed his office to intervene in the lawsuit, to stay the case, and allow the AG's office the opportunity to pressure this charity to accept a lowball settlement offer. This would have saved Nate Paul millions of dollars. The creep of corruption continued when Nate Paul wanted access to confidential investigation materials 
related to police raids on his home and businesses. In an attempt to learn what the police knew and how they knew it, Mr. Paul submitted multiple open records requests seeking the full police file. Even though no police file may be disclosed due to the well-established law enforcement exception, Mr. Paxton pressured his deputies to authorize the release of this information. Had he succeeded, Mr. Paxton would have created precedent allowing any person under criminal investigation, whether for a violent felony or a sex offense, to obtain confidential information about the investigations of their conduct. Mr. Paxton simply did not care that his request to release information to Nate Paul would have put police and victims across the state at risk. Unfortunately, the House investigation revealed that Mr. Paxton's relationship with Mr. Paul was far more extensive than even his closest advisors knew. Over the course of three months, Mr. Paxton personally met with Nate Paul more than 20 times. Many times, Mr. Paxton would ditch his security detail. And Nate Paul even set up a secret Uber account that allowed Mr. Paxton to secretly visit Nate Paul and others. To conceal his efforts, Mr. Paxton communicated in off-the-book ways, using burner phones, encrypted messaging apps, and secret email addresses. Mr. Paxton's brazen abuse of the Criminal Justice Division at the Office of Attorney General is finally what caused eight of his senior staff to report him to the police. The question that haunts them and should frighten all of us is what would have happened if they had not reported him? How far would Mr. Paxton have gone in using the power of the Attorney General's office to harass and punish his and Nate Paul's perceived enemies and hurt innocent Texans. Mr. Paxton tries to defend his actions by isolating each event and claiming that standing alone they can't support impeachment. You cannot and should not view each act in a vacuum. The evidence will show that they are all connected. They're all connected by Mr. Paxton and his desire to deliver for his partner, Nate Paul. Mr. Paxton will also argue that the acts represent differences of opinion on policy or efforts to help a constituent. But the witnesses will explain to you that Mr. Paxton's actions have nothing to do with implementing conservative policy. And in fact, his efforts violated those very principles. Mr. Paxson's senior advisors were fully aware of the dire consequences of reporting him to law enforcement. They knew retribution would be swift and vicious. The choice they made to report him to the police was one of the hardest of their lives. But they will tell you that there really wasn't a choice at all. Sam Houston who on this day in 1836 was elected president of a new and free republic, reminded Texans, do right and risk the consequences. Do right and risk the consequences. Doing the right thing is sometimes not easy. Sometimes 
We must do the right thing in the face of enormous pressure to remain silent. The witnesses felt this pressure. The house felt this pressure. And the Senate is feeling this pressure. It's unfair and it's wrong. But despite the forces that seek to intimidate the Senate, you have taken the first steps toward the truth by giving the people who did the right thing a chance to testify. Despite the attacks that they know will continue to come, the witnesses will do the right thing once more. And they will take this witness stand and they will provide the clarity that the Senate needs and that the public deserves to find out what was really happening behind closed doors. As chair, I resolutely give this statement with the support of and on behalf of the board of managers and on behalf of the Texas House. You all provided us with an hour to make an opening statement, but we prefer to yield back the rest of that time to the most important folks that will show up in this room, the witnesses. The same witnesses that Mr. Paxton has been so desperate to discredit and intimidate and to silence. We are honored to be able to give them their day in this honored and rare court where we simply seek justice on behalf of the people of Texas. Thank you, Mr. President. May it please the court. I stand in this hallowed chamber in this historic proceeding on behalf of the duly elected Attorney General of the state of Texas. The prosecution and the press, and I'm sure here, will tell a whopping story. It's a tale full of sound and fury. It signifies nothing. And you may wonder why I say that. Because when we are done, I believe that no matter your party affiliation, And no matter where you stand now, you will conclude what I have concluded, that there is nothing to this. Ken Paxton gave nothing of significance to Nate Paul. Nate Paul received nothing of significance from Ken Paxton. This whole case is a whole lot of nothing. I make my living trying cases to Texas juries. Cases are supposed to be decided only upon the evidence. But I do wonder, are we really going to get a fair trial here? Have you already decided, based on what is politically expedient or what's best for you personally? Or is it even possible to get a fair hearing? Especially after this case has been tried in the press, Ken Paxson has been convicted in the press based on ignorance, innuendo, and outright lies. So the question is, will you decide based only on the evidence? Because that's your oath. That's what you swore to do, no matter the consequences. And I urge you to do your duty and do it without fear. They say this is the impeachment of a lifetime. But is it? Because depending on what you do here, maybe it will become commonplace. What happens here will have consequences no matter how it turns out. Let's be clear, if this misguided effort is successful, which I feel confident it will not be, the precedent it would set would be perilous for any elected official 
in the state of Texas. What is being attempted here hasn't happened in our state in a hundred years. And unlike other efforts of the past like this one, this scheme was rushed, it was secretive, it was poorly planned, and was wholly unsupported by evidence. Indeed, despite the social media frenzy, the misinformed commentators, the reporters with an agenda, at the end of this you will come to know what I know, that despite all of us being told that the evidence in this matter is ten times worse than the public knows, it is instead a hundred times less. There is nothing here to support impeachment. Nothing. Now there's been a gag order in this case. That gag order put our team at a distinct disadvantage. That gag order prevented us from rebutting this false narrative created by a frenzied press. The gag order, of course, didn't stop those media members with agendas or those media outlets aligned with the house managers and they were calling for Ken Paxton's head. We've heard in the media about burner phones. <laughs> there are no burner phones, but we couldn't respond. We've heard about secret email addresses, so secret that every person on Ken Paxton's staff used the same type of email address because they were traveling to China. There's no secret email address, but we couldn't respond. We've heard about Uber rides for Ken Paxton in Vegas, Chicago, or to even nightclubs. Those are manufactured lies, but we couldn't respond. We've even heard from the press about cakes from HEB, stolen pins, pilfered sport coats, outright foolishness, but we couldn't respond. We heard about house renovations supposedly paid for by the manipulating boogeyman, Nate Paul. That never happened. Ken Paxton and Angela Paxton paid for their house renovations. And I'm going to show that absolutely 100%. They know it, but yet they still stood up here and repeated that lie. Let's talk a little bit about some background. 2015, Ken Paxton ran against the anointed candidate for Attorney General Dan Branch. Branch represented Highland Park and the political elites. Dan Branch was the establishment candidate. Ken Paxton's beat him soundly. Almost immediately after that win, Ken Paxton was on the receiving end of a clearly political indictment at the hands of rivals within his own party. That saga continues to this day with a pair of unelected special prosecutors nudging it forward year after year with the expectation and hope that someday they will get paid. Nevertheless, despite being indicted and despite a very public lawsuit that makes the exact same allegations that are being made here, Ken Paxton easily won his last primary, as he has in every election. In fact, Ken Paxton thumped the establishment candidate, who this last time happened to be a Bush. And it wasn't even close. Ken Paxton won 68% to 32% in the primary. Now think about that. General Paxton trounced the establishment candidate, a member of the Bush dynasty, and beat him badly. And incidentally, as an aside, did you realize that the day before the vote for this impeachment was had, that that same Bush applied to renew his law license? 
Let's put this proceeding in context. Almost 30 million people live in the state of Texas. Texans chose at the voting booth who they wanted to be their attorney general, despite the same baseless allegations that are being made here. But because of what this House has done, only 30 people out of almost 30 million will decide whether Ken Paxton is allowed to serve in the office he was voted into. That's not how it's supposed to work. That's not democratic. What could be less democratic than 30 people deciding who serves as the Attorney General of Texas instead of the 4.2 million people who voted to put him there? Every election season we hear, your vote is your voice. It's important to go vote to be a good member of society. We hear about the sanctity of the right to vote. We hear that people fought and died for the right to vote. We hear every vote should count. Yet to get here, Texas House took away the votes of over 4 million Texans who voted for Ken Paxton. And they did it in only a four-hour hearing. There is a right way for Texas voters to remove someone from office. It's called vote against them. Who the people want, who the people have voted for, should matter. Let me give you some names. George P. Bush, Eva Guzman, Louis Gohmert, Dan Branch, Barry Smitherman, Joe Jaworski, Rochelle Garza, Justin Nelson. Those are just some of the people that Texans decided they did not want to be their attorney general. The people chose General Paxton. Do their votes matter? People are watching. The will of those Texans should not be subverted. And people of Texas, let me say this. I am very happy that these proceedings are being live streamed. I think it is good that Texas voters can hear every bit of evidence or the complete lack of evidence that supports this from both sides. I'm sure that the more than 4.2 million people who voted for Ken Paxton will want to hear why. Will want to hear why 30 people are deciding his fate. And through all of this, we must not forget, Ken Paxton, for the last eight years, has operated the most aggressive, effective litigation apparatus of any attorney general's office in the country. According to the pundits, Ken Paxton was never supposed to be serving in statewide office. But Ken Paxton is very much serving. Look at his record. Under his leadership, the AG's office has won major cases for Texas on immigration, the lives of the unborn, religious freedom, and the continuous overreach by the federal government on our everyday lives. Under his direction, the AG's office has sued the Obama and Biden administrations more than any other AG office in the country. Even CNN has called Texas a legal graveyard for Biden's policies. And under his watch, and with his personal involvement, the Attorney, General, the Attorney General's office has recovered billions of dollars for Texas taxpayers, including $3 billion against Big Pharma as a result of the opioid crisis. It has been said, but I think it's worth repeating. Ken Paxton is the best attorney general in the country, period. All of this, of course, begs the most pressing question. If Ken Paxton is so good at his job and routinely defeats his political opponents at the ballot box, then what the devil are we doing here? 
We know this entire process took less than two months with fewer than 15 witnesses, none of which were ever put under oath. Shouldn't this investigation, if done right, have taken a whole lot longer? After all, this historic procedure took an entire year the last time it was used, with sworn testimony taken by the committee, in open hearings, given the respondent an opportunity to be heard, to confront his accusers. So why was it so short this time? Why did it happen when it did? What was the rush? Because if they had taken their time and done it right, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't hear about burner phones. We wouldn't hear about house renovations. We wouldn't hear about secret Uber rides. We wouldn't hear any of that foolishness because they would have delved into it and saw that it was all false. So why? I'll tell you why. On May 19th, 2023, Speaker Dade Phelan was so drunk while running house business, he could barely even hold the gavel. And that drunkenness was on video and was on the internet for the entire world to see. I'm sure you've seen the video as well. Four days later, on May 23rd, Ken Paxton issued a statement and called for Dave Thielen to resign. In response, the committee hurriedly met the very next day, conducted a four-hour hearing, and recommended impeachment the day after that. Because of the rush, the House didn't bother to vet this foolishness, and now they put it right in your lap for you to do the work that they failed to do. This impeachment was the perfect marriage of a group of representatives fueled by a powerful lobbyist and led by a drunken speaker seeking political vengeance. It was also a result of a group of uninformed civil litigants and their attorneys who were motivated by money. The House's General Investigating Committee proceeded in a rush, in secret, so secret in fact that the only people who could have testified and brought actual evidence and exonerated Ken Paxton were not even called. I hope you will look at the evidence. I hope you'll really look at the evidence. I have faith in this body that you will actually see the evidence and make an informed decision. I want to focus just on a few of the impeachment articles. There's so many of them, I wouldn't have time to go through every one. But I think one that you might be interested in is Article 10. That's the article where the House managers have argued that Ken Paxton's house renovations were paid for by Nate Paul. And you've heard that lie repeated over and over and over again in the press, and it's false. The House managers adopted this lie about a non-existent bribe and repeated it with no evidence, nothing. The news media endlessly amplified this lie without ever documenting it. And then it's been repeated over and over and even repeated by my colleague today. Hear this, press corps. Ken Paxton and Angela Paxton paid for their house renovations. Period. You will see in this case a steam team estimate. The Paxton's house in Terrytown had some water damage. Steam team came out to correct the water damage. We're going to show you those documents where USAA claim was made to pay for that. You will see that the Paxton's had fits 
with the insurance company, just like all of us have at one time or another, trying to get that claim paid. You will see that Angela Paxson specifically was involved in talking through some of the repairs they were going to do as, a, as part of that process. They were going to do some upgrades. And you'll see mind-numbing pictures of Angela and Ken Paxton at Home Depot, at Lowe's, pricing stoves, pricing countertops, trying to get the best buy and ultimately deciding that despite what you hear about granite, with all due respect, Senator Paxton, their countertops are just old ratty tile. And they didn't get a new stove. And they didn't get to change out their cabinets. But that's not what you've heard in the press. I'm going to show you the USAA docs. I'm going to show you that on September 16th of 2020, USAA made its final determination of what they would pay. They paid for Steam Clean, the original contractor, and the second contractor was Cupertino Builders. And you've heard, oh, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a foul. Busby, in the press conference, he showed, he showed Cupertino Builders' invoice. That company didn't exist. Well, guess what? It did. It absolutely did. I'm going to show you the documents, and you're going to see that this article is false, just like every other one. You're going to see the USAA determination. You're going to see that USAA knew that they had another contractor. You're going to see a, a text from, from the trustee back and forth between Ken Paxton, where Ken Paxton says, I have this invoice, I have to pay it. You're going to see all that, and you're going to see the wire come from the Paxton's bank account and go into Cupertino Builder's bank account. You're going to see the front side of the transaction and the back side of the transaction. And you're going to conclude like I've concluded, like everybody has to conclude, that these folks were pinching pennies. They were trying to, to update and renovate their house. And there were a lot of things they just couldn't afford. I'm going to show you pictures ad nauseum of their house. And you will conclude what I've concluded is the Paxtons have been defamed over and over in the press and by the house. Now, the second so-called bribe, Nate Paul, the boogeyman Nate Paul gave Ken Paxton $25,000. Oh, goodness gracious. You know when he gave that money? October 2018. Years before any of these allegations ever existed. Years before any of the acts allegedly that occurred ever occurred. Think about their theory. Their theory is Nate Paul in October of 2018 was thinking, he was so manipulative and so smart that he knew at some time, sometime years in the future, he may be needing something from Ken Paxton. Here's the problem with that. He gave money to people in this very chamber as well. Ken Paxson wasn't the only recipient of a campaign donation, but let's focus on campaign donations. Incidentally, in 2018, Ken Paxson raised millions upon millions of dollars, a $25,000 donation, although it sounds like a lot of money. Ken Paxson is a great fundraiser. He raises a lot of money, and that donation ain't even a blip on the radar screen. But let's think about that. Campaign donations can't be bribes. They are not bribes. Do any of us believe that a campaign donation in here is a bribe? You know how, how often I get calls for campaign donations? 
lot. Are those bribes? No. If campaign donations were bribes, everybody in this town would be impeached. Just line up. Once we finish Ken Paxton, we'll start impeaching everybody else. I want to shift our focus from the time I have and, and address what could be the elephant in the room. There's been some salacious allegations made about Ken Paxton. The argument is, is that Nate Paul provided a job for a woman named Laura Olson. It doesn't hold any water. Laura Olson applied for a job. Laura Olson got a job. You're going to see the employment contract. You're going to see what her salary was. You're going to see her pay stubs. You're going to hear about the work that she did. And you're also going to hear that she continues to do that work today. Today. That was not a bribe. That was a job sought out and received. And she's doing real work today. You'll see the pay stubs and you'll see the employment application. Now, you've heard so much. My colleague talked about how Ken Paxson turned over the keys to the AG's office to Nate Paul. Remember hearing that? Totally false. One of the things you're going to see in this case is that Ken Paxson got nothing from Nate Paul, and Nate Paul got nothing from Ken Paxson. Let's look at what Nate Paul got from the AG's office. Nate Paul believed that the feds had targeted him. He believed that the feds had violated his civil rights. He believed that an affidavit, a warrant for the search of his home and businesses had been altered. He believed it, still believes it today. He didn't know where to go. He went to Ken Paxson. Ken Paxson sent him to the Travis County District Attorney's Office, who then turned around and referred it back because of conflicts. There were conflicts. But what did Nate Paul get from that? No bankruptcies were averted. No foreclosures were stopped. No FBI agents were indicted. No FBI agents had to respond to any subpoena. Nothing. Nate Paul got nothing. If that was an attempted bribe, that was the least effective one in the, in the history of the United States. You're going to see. Nate Paul got nothing. In fact, you will also see email after email after email of Nate Paul and his lawyers sending letters to the AG's office madder than a hornet's nest. You're not doing what, you're not doing your job. You're not doing your job. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. We're going to sue the AG's office. Does that sound like somebody who has the keys to the AG's office? It sounds like somebody who might be a little entitled and thinks that public officials should jump when he says jump, maybe jump and hope he jumps high enough. But one thing is clear, Nate Paul got nothing and he was very unhappy about it. He did not think the AG's office was doing its job and he sent email after email, letter after letter, culminating in a letter where he threatened a lawsuit against the AG's office. You never saw those emails, did you? You never saw those letters, did you? You never even heard about them. The press knows about them. They didn't report that, did they? This idea that the AG's office harmed the Mitty Foundation. Do you know who the Mitty Foundation is? Do you know their history? Do you know who the first AG was that had issue with the Mitty Foundation? Greg Abbott. 
Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott sued the Mitty Foundation for all kinds of foolishness. They had one person indicted. They had another person who allegedly beat their wife and child. There was like a lot of turnover. And in this particular instance, you will see why the AG's office decided to intervene. There's a memo. A memo that lays out the, the tortured history of the Mitty Foundation and the decision-making matrix and every single person in the chain of command signed off, including the so-called whistleblowers, to intervene in the Mitty Foundation case. Not to protect charity. See, this is the mis misconception. The, the AG's office is not there to protect charities, as has been alleged. The AG's office is there to protect, to protect the public's interest in charity. In other words, those are donated funds and the charity better take care of its P's and Q's. And the Mitty Foundation was not. And Nate Paul was so mad that the AG's office wasn't doing more. The AG's office intervened. The intervention lasted three months and the AG's office dropped the case once they saw what was going on. And remember this, you'll see the memo where not only did the entire chain of command decide to intervene in the Mitty Foundation litigation, but also decided to open an investigation of the Mitty Foundation. Have you heard that in the press? This is what we're up against. We are trying a case not here in front of you, honorable members. We're trying a case where we're getting prosecuted in the press. And so here we are, the baseless allegations thrown at us, shotgun approach, throw it against the wall, see what will stick and make them respond. That's what this is. That's what this is and that's what it has been. There's a reason my, count, my colleague did not go through any facts to support this because there are no facts to support this. And let's also talk briefly about this so-called midnight opinion. Again, utter foolishness. Did you know on the very day that the, the informal guidance was issued, they issued another one the very same time frame, like the very same day? You want to know how many foreclosures were stopped by the informal guidance? Zero. They didn't report that either, did they? And you didn't hear that either, did you? Many of these articles, I would, I would respectfully suggest, if you look at what's alleged and you look at the evidence, you'll dismiss it out of hand. Just, this is a good one. They claim that this was a, an AG's opinion, this so-called midnight opinion. On the very face of the document, it says this is informal guidance. It's not a 402 legal opinion. That should have been the reason that should have been dismissed but we will show that to you. We will prove that to you, and that article should be disposed of in short work. Now, finally, let me talk about these ex-employees. One of the facts that I find to be the most egregious with regard to these ex-employees is that they made assumptions about their boss, but they did not raise those assumptions with their boss. Many of the issues in this particular case, most of those so-called whistleblowers participated in and signed off on. You know what the genesis of all this is? 
Remember I talked about the referral to the, uh, from the district attorney's office to the AG's office? They were unaware that the district attorney's office had done a second referral that did not go through the AG's office. It went directly to this young man, Brandon Kamick. And so when they saw that Brandon Kamick had gotten subpoenas that went to some financial institutions, they just, they, their heads almost exploded. And rather than asking the questions, calling the DA's office, finding out what was going on, they just assumed that this young man, this young lawyer who was being paid 300 bucks an hour, because that's, that was the, the rate, and that's why we got somebody like Brandon Kamick. But they assumed that he was off, off doing something untoward. And they never asked the questions, why would you be subpoena in a financial institution? Because it was a second referral from the DA's office, a second referral that gave him the authority to investigate bid rigging. We all know there was bid rigging going around, going on in Austin. That was what the DA referred to the AG's office to investigate. Not prosecute, investigate. They assumed they assumed the worst. And instead of asking their boss, you know what they did instead? They sent a letter to the FBI saying that Brandon Kamick had appeared in front of a grand jury. He never appeared in front of any grand jury. The subpoenas were prepared by the DA's office. All he did was docu-sign them. And they sent that letter to the, to the FBI. They came and met with some of the governor's staff. They came and may have met with some of you even instead of meeting with their boss that they claimed they were loyal to. And you know, you want to know what's most egregious? They sent letters and they took Ken Paxton's name off the letterhead. Now you think about that for a minute. Oh, these people were retaliated against and fired. Ken Paxton was trying to hide something. Let me, let me just ask you point blank. If one of your staff, your chief of staff, decided that he disagreed or she disagreed with one of your actions and decided when you were out of the office in Ohio trying to put together the Google case with a bunch of other AGs to recover monies for the state of Texas while you're gone, they get together, they send everybody home and eight of them meet and they take Ken Paxton's name off the letterhead and start sending correspondence Without his name, imagine if your chief of staff did that, you would fire them on the spot. If you're a subordinate and you disagree with your boss's course of action, you raise it with her or him, and if there's still a disagreement, you resign. That's how it works. What you don't do is try to hijack the office, wage a coup, or all the other things they did. Uh, sabotage grants. You know, they tried to sabotage the grants that the AG's office would receive. Millions of dollars of grants. They tried to sabotage the office. You're going to hear a much different story when you hear the evidence. A much different story. And let me finish with this. There's a young man named Drew Wicker. He's been all over the news. You remember who I'm talking about? You know, I think my, my colleague made it clear. And we all know that you guys read. I mean, obviously, you pay attention to what's going on. That's part of your job. There's a young man named Drew Wicker, a good young man. He was interviewed by the House investigators. I want you to watch, 
watch and listen to that interview. Because they asked him, did you ever deliver anything to Nate Paul? No, never, never happened. They came back five minutes later. When you delivered things to Nate Paul, how many things did you deliver? This is how they did this young man who feels like he's in between a rock and a hard place. He's friends with some of the people that quit or were fired. And he still says that Angela and Ken Paxton are like family to him. And they squeezed him. And they squeezed him. He's the one, you may recall, that said, I was there in the kitchen and Angela had expressed that she wanted granite countertops and Ken Paxton was there with me and Kevin Wood, the contractor, says, let me check with Nate. And then we heard about $20,000 granite countertops. I don't know where those are, Senator Paxton. I don't know where those are. What you'll see instead is I have the samples that they went when they went to Home Depot and Lowe's and they sampled and they priced it and they decided they couldn't afford it. Nate Paul had nothing whatever to do with it and Drew Wicker knows that is true as well. We look forward to putting on this case and we hope, we hope you'll listen to all the evidence. We hope that you'll make a decision not based on political expediency but based on the evidence you're going to hear. And remember... The burden of proof. It's not we throw out allegations and you say, oh, that sounds sexy, I'm voting for impeachment. They have to prove their case by the numbers, by the numbers beyond a reasonable doubt. They won't be able to do that. And on that point, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague for my time remaining, Dan Cogdale, who has some points he'd like to make. Dan? Good afternoon. My name is, whoa, getting off to a great start. My name is Dan Cogdell, Anthony Oso, and I are two of the lawyers that are helping Ken Paxton. You know, when you get ready for a case like this, there's some things that you know, and there's some things that you don't know. Well, in this case, when I was preparing, I knew I was going to know most of the lawyers. I know my opposing counsel, known them most of my life. They're, they're friends. I'm not going to say anything negative about them. Uh, it should give you some pause, though, because if they're friends with me, you know their judgment is a little bit askew. That having been said, I know some of the witnesses. I know Mr. Penley. I know Mr. Maxwell. Most of these people are good people. I have no problem with their character, generally speaking. I have a big problem with some of the things that they did. I don't mind sharing with you that my wife is going through a significant medical issue. And what the best time for me to come here. But she said, no, you go. This is bigger than me. This is bigger than you. And this is bigger than Ken Paxton. No offense, Ken. She's not your biggest fan. But what she meant by that is we are living on the wet end of democracy right now. Is it up to the voters or is it up to politicians to see who stays in office? Your, your decision is much bigger than Ken Paxton. Your decision is literally about democracy in this state. I appreciate Mr. Murr's comments. I also appreciate the focus on the bigger picture and what's happening in here. 
One of the things that's intimidating, even I've, I've been doing this for a long time, 42 years. Sometimes I don't recognize that dude in the mirror when I walk in in the mornings. But I, I wondered to myself, how do I begin a case like this? This is a case of enormous consequences. I wanted the press, I wanted the sound bites, I wanted the cute things, right? As a, as a side note, this may be one moment I get to relish because I'm not automatically the biggest ego of the lawyers involved. Not automatically, I have some competition. The significance of this case is titanic, as I mentioned. And I wondered, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna say? Oh my God, I need the hook, I need the line, I, I, need, I, need, I need the pop. And it occurred to me, I don't need that. It occurred to me that I have the truth. It occurred to me that the reason we're here, how did we get here? This is the very room where General Paxton has been sworn in again and again. This is the very room, as I understand it, where one of his daughters got married. How do we go from that to here? I'll tell you how. Because people assumed things that weren't true. They assumed that Paxton was involved in an illegal relationship with Nate Paul. They assumed that Paxton's actions were intended to get the records to Nate Paul. They assumed that Paxton gave the DPS records to Nate Paul. They assumed that, that, that Paxton hired Kamek illegally. All of those things are false. All of those things are false. Even Einstein said assumptions are made and most assumptions are wrong. A man much lesser perhaps than Einstein, but it's important to me, my dad, he told me when I was a young kid, you know, son, how do you, you can't spell assume without making an ass out of you and me. And he's right. And that's exactly what happened in this case. The reality is, this is not a trial where you can assume anything. This is a trial that requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Spoiler alert, it's the same amount of proof that's required in a death penalty case. I'm a visual learner. I like to see things to help me learn. So I'm gonna offer these next slides to you. Just, they're not the law, but they're an explanation. We deal with different standards. A lot of you are lawyers. A lot of you know these things, but a lot of you have never dealt with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So let me suggest probable cause. If probable cause were a house, probable cause might look like that. Probable cause is the same standard by which the house had to, quote, indict or return the articles of impeachments. That is the quantum of proof that was required. Preponderance of the evidence. That is the, that is the standard that Mr. Busby uses in his, in his, in his cases. Those are in 50 versus 50 and a half versus 40, any slight more, any little bit more. That's a preponderance. Clear and convincing evidence. That is the same quantum of proof that is required in a, in a situation where CPS wants to take your child away. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt if it was a house, it would look like that. It would look like 
Mr. DeGaren's house. It would look like a big house. Sorry, Dick. My point is a pretty simple one. There is a huge difference between the quantum of proof that the House based its decision on and what you are required by law to base your decision on. It's night and day. I'm going to go through the articles quickly. Judge, how much time do I have left? 21 minutes. Oh, good. 21 minutes. Uh, I may give a couple of those back. We'll see. Here's the allegation that Paxton directed employees at his office to act contrary to law by refusing to render a proper decision relating to a public information request for records held by the DPS by issuing a decision involving another public information request, which is a mouthful, that was contrary to law and applicable legal precedent. That's the allegation. Here are the facts. Fact number one is that Paxton is the Attorney General. Paxton, as the Attorney General, can decide how his office responds to these inquiries. He's the Attorney General. Fact number two, Paxton did not order the release of the records. That's kind of been lost in the wash here. There's all these suggestions that Paxton ordered the release of the records that ostensibly were favorable to Nate Paul. No, he didn't. He did not order the release of those records, period, full stop. What he did was had his office take no position on whether or not the records should be released. That's a different color of horse. Fact number four, that no records were released to Nate Paul as a result of the actions of Ken Paxton. Let me repeat that. Nate Paul got not a single record based upon the action of Ken Paxton. Fact five, there were other records that were released to Nate Paul and his lawyers, but they had nothing to do with any action by Ken Paxton. You follow me? Other records were released, but not at Paxton's direction, suggestion, interference, what have you. Misuse of official information, the allegation, specifically Paxton improperly obtained access to information held by his office, that had not been properly disclosed for the purpose of providing that information to the benefit of Nate Paul. That's the allegation. The facts are a little different. Fact number one, Paxton did not illegally access any records. Let me repeat that. Despite what the allegation is, he never accessed any record illegally. It didn't happen. As the Attorney General, Paxton had every right legally to access those records. Fact three, there's no evidence that Paxton copied those records. I'm kind of getting, getting into the weeds with you here, but bear with me. There's a fellow named Vassar that you'll hear about. He had the file and is responsible for maintaining that file. He gave those files to Mr. Wicker, who Mr. Busby talked to you about. Mr. Wicker is an aide that, that works with, with Ken. Wicker says he was never asked to copy the file. I think the evidence is going to be pretty overwhelmingly that Ken Paxton may be more technologically challenged than me. 
So if anybody was going to copy those files, it wouldn't be Ken Paxton. I'm not even sure he had the code to the copy machine. Paxton gives the file back to Wicker after Wicker gave it to him. Wicker gives it back to, to Vassar. And there's no evidence that Paxton gave those documents to Mr. Paul. There's this big kerfuffle. And look, you're going to hear from a, from a fellow by the name of Dave Maxwell. Dave is six foot six. Without the Stetson, you call Central Casting and ask them to send you a Texas Ranger. And by God, they send you Dave Maxwell. I'm a fan of Dave Maxwell, generally speaking. But Dave Maxwell did some things and said some things that weren't true. While he was being interviewed by the House, he said, and I quote, Ken Paxton, Ken Paxton gave the file to Drew Wicker and he delivered it to Nate Paxton in an alley in the dark of the night. That's absolutely false. Maybe Dave was just comfortable in his own skin and thought he could stretch out his credibility. It's either a mistake or a lie. I, I don't care. Whatever it was, was wrong. That never happened. Months later, Wicker gives an envelope to Nate Paul, an envelope, but there's no evidence that that envelope contained these celebrated documents, and I suggest to you that these documents would have been several inches thick, not two or three pages, and it was, it, uh, I'll, I'll skip past that, but at the time, or really after the time, when the board of managers is claiming that Nate Paul surreptitiously had these documents, his lawyers are still suing in court to get the documents. That makes no sense. Why would his lawyers still be pursuing civil remedies, which they're entitled to do, to get these documents if he already had the documents and if he'd gotten those documents from Ken Paxton? That is dumber than a bucket of hair. It makes no sense. They're just wrong. Maybe they had good intentions. Maybe this was their belief for the moment, but they're wrong. Fifth allegation, disregard of official duty, the engagement of Brandon Kamick. It is, while holding as office as attorney general, Ken Paxton misused his official powers by violating the laws governing the appointment of prosecuting attorneys pro term or pro tem. We'll get into that. And Paxton engaged Brandon Kamick, a licensed attorney, to conduct an investigation into a baseless complaint. That's the allegation. During which Kamick issued more than 30 grand jury subpoenas in an effort to benefit Nate Paul. Whatever. Here are the facts. Fact number one is Paxton has every legal right to hire Brandon Kamek. We're going to get into the why, but he's got that right under the government code. You're going to hear a bunch of kerfuffle about one of my favorite terms, the EAM, the Executive Action Memorandum. Sorry, but only in state government could we come up with a phrase like the Executive Action Memorandum. What it really is, it's policy. It's not the law. It's an internal policy within the Attorney General's office. It is not the law. Fact two, Kamek was not an, a, an attorney pro tem. Maybe that's a distinction without a difference, but that's what they've alleged. And you would think 
that these lawyers and the, the, the investigative committee and the committee are full of lawyers, most of which, or many of which, are ex-DAs. An attorney pro tem is appointed when the entire office has been disqualified. This had nothing to do with that. Brandon Kamick was hired, as the documents say, as an outside counsel. But they've alleged in their complaint, he was an attorney pro tem. He was not. Fact three, a baseless complaint. Here's the funny thing about being a baseless complaint. They forgot to tell Brandon Kamick about that. And we've got a lot of people that have been hurt by these allegations and the investigations and I guess it depends on your viewfinder on whose ox is getting gored and whether you like Brandon Kamick or not. He got absolutely skewered in the press. He was vilified by the press. He was just taken to the woodshed. He was beat like a rented mule by the press. And all that young man was trying to do was doing an investigation that the people who worked for Ken Paxton wouldn't do. And guess what? No one bothered to tell Mr. Kamick that it's a baseless investigation. In fact, he was told by Ken Paxton the same thing that Mark Penley was told by Ken Paxton, who parenthetically, I know and I like, but he didn't do anything. But that more importantly, the direction given to Penley, the direction given to Kamek was the same. Find the truth. Let me repeat that. The direction that Paxton gave him in this corrupt, invasive, corrosive, bribery, kickback, horrible scheme, the direction he gave Mark Penley, who worked for him, was exactly the same direction he gave Brandon Kamek. Find the truth. We're going to impeach a sitting attorney general for giving the direction, find the truth? Not one person, not one piece of evidence will you hear where they say lie, where Ken Paxton told him to lie, cheat, steal, shade, do whatever it takes. I just, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And yet here we sit with 31 of you, with 15 of us and 15 or more of them. Here we sit when the allegation, when the, when the allegation is it's corrupt, when the, when the truth is, he said, go find the truth for God's sakes. What are we doing here? Oh yeah, this baseless complaint that Mr. Murr, nice to meet you, sir, that Mr. Murr referred to, it wasn't a baseless complaint. The Travis County DA's office referred it to the AG's office and ultimately a second one to Brandon Kamen. It may not be the greatest, sexiest complaint ever, but it wasn't baseless. Fact four, no one bothered to tell Brandon Kamek. I think I've got a bit histrionical about that. And Another one of my friends, Johnny Sutton, former United States attorney, worked under W, great lawyer, fine fella. But these same folks, the whistleblowers that are carping so much about Ken Paxton and going outside counsel and doing all these ultra virus things when hiring another lawyer, they were trying to hire Johnny Sutton, 
who last I checked was an outside lawyer. Now, you got to be asking yourself, why is it that Paxton hired Kamek? Number one, Paxton believed in good faith that there had been misconduct. Number two, he asked his deputies to investigate it. His, his, his direction was simple, seek the truth. His staff did little to nothing in terms of an actual investigation. He asked again, nothing really happened. No one seemed to be interested in it at, at any of it. For two months, it just sat there. The one time where Ken, pa Ken Paxton comes to Mark Finley and says, hey man, I'd like you to look at this. He does nothing. He does absolutely nothing. Frustrated, he interviews outside lawyers and decided on Kamek. And again, he gave Kamek the same investigation or same instruction he gave Mark Penley. Find the truth. At no time did Paxton ever seek to impede, impair, obstruct. Here's one of my favorite vignettes that you're going to see. Dave Maxwell, this six foot six Texas Ranger, iconic figure. He's going to come in and say he was asked to participate in an illegal investigation. Really, Ranger? It's an illegal investigation, and on video, according to you, if your world right, if your worldview is right, they ask you right there on videotape to participate in an illegal investigation, and you just sat there like a bump on the log. You didn't arrest anybody. You didn't make a note. You didn't cause their engine to file. It was illegal, and you were asked to participate it, and literally, there you sat. This is our legendary one riot, one ranger in action, doing nothing? Really? Paxton just wanted it investigated. Uh, Mr. Busby stole a little bit of my thunder on these, these um, letterhead issues, but the point might be worth stating again. Who in the world do these people think they are? Honest to God, if your chief of staff came in and scraped your name off the letterhead and sent it out, how long, how much longer do you think they'd be working for you? They, they wouldn't be, and they shouldn't be. Who in the world gave these people that idea? Who in the world told these people it was, it was going to be okay? I bet you the evidence is no one. They took it upon themselves. They deputized themselves and were some sort of power ranger team where they could just do whatever they wanted, scrape Ken Paxton's name off the, off the letterhead and send these letters out. Mr. Busby also talked to you about Michael Wynn's letter to Paxton, but I think it bears repeating. Under their worldview... Wynn, who represents Nate Paul, writes a letter to Ken Paxton, his supposed co-conspirator, threatens to sue his co-conspirator, threatens to sue the office of the attorney generals, alleging false statements made by Ken Paxton to damaging uh, Mr. Paul's reputation, claiming inappropriate coordination to undermine the investigation, alleging obstruction to, present, to prevent the Mitty Foundation investigation, literally bringing suit 
against one of his, what in the real world would be a co-conspirator. What's next? A hired hitman suing for breach of contract when he doesn't get paid for the kill? Are, are you kidding me? This makes absolutely no sense. None. And the reason it makes no sense is because there was no illegal relationship between Paxton and Paul. Look, I get it. I understand why there's some eye rolls about Paxton doing things that most of you would think, ah, I don't know about that. I, really, I don't know about that. But here's why Paxton was a little different. These claims with Ken Paxton that Nate Paul was making, they resonated with him. I hear you. They very well may not have resonated with you, but I'll suggest to you, luckily, you haven't gone through what Ken Paxton has gone through for the last eight years. Let me repeat that, eight years. How do I know eight years? Because I have been by his side on that Texas state securities fraud case. In that case, Paxton believed he had been the target of a wrongful prosecution. And here's why. Number one, it's, it had been pending for six years at that point, back in 2020 when all the fur was hitting the fan. Counselor, you have four minutes left. Yes, sir. Thank you. Number two, the judge that presided over the excuse grand me, Excuse me, objection. I believe... I believe the court has said all four of those counts are out of this trial. He doesn't get to start talking about the merits no, I get, of it. I get to talk about his mindset. My, my objection is he shouldn't be talking about this at all based on the court's ruling in the past. I'm talking about his we mindset. Are not, we're not allowed to talk about it. How can he get up there and opening and give his version of it? I'm talking about General Paxton's mindset as to why these claims were resonating with him. Right. He started talking about a judge. He's talking about the facts. I object. Sustain. Continue. Let me put it this way. Ken Paxton was viewing things from a much different viewfinder than you or I might have been viewing those things through. And there's a reason why he was viewing things differently through a different viewfinder than you and I, because of what he had experienced. And it wasn't what you and I have experienced for the last Eight years. Let me get this through so I don't offend Mr. Harden any further. Sorry, Rusty. Here's the difference between what the House did and what you have to do. What you cannot do is assume anything. What you must do is look through the viewfinder of beyond a reasonable doubt. Again, that is a much different process than what the House did. Is there proof beyond all reasonable doubt for you to convict Ken Paxton? And I suggest to you, it is crystal clear that there is not evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. I have one simple ask. Do the right thing. I think the senator that led us in prayer asked for the Lord's help on that. Literally, do the right thing. And the right thing is to vote not guilty. Thank you all for your time.
Okay, so there you have it. Every word of the opening statements from the impeachment trial of suspended Attorney General Ken Paxton here at the Texas Capitol. Uh, I'm going to be staying on here because it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm looking around. Jason Whiteley, I don't think, is relieving me anytime soon. If you find Jason Whiteley or see Jason Whiteley, do let me know if, if there are any sightings out there. Uh, I'm going to be handling it uh, from here, though. We're going to be doing updates every single day. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Jason Wheeler TV. Uh, he's at Jason Whiteley, by the way, if you want to you know, hit him up too and find out what he's up to these days. Uh, also, we're going to be having some special uh, episodes of Yolitics live from here in Austin because this is all anyone is talking about in the political world here in Texas right now. So look for those uh, extra episodes of Yolitics coming your way as we head through these next couple of weeks. Uh, hope you uh, got something out of listening to this and we will talk again next time.